Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Three, two, one. I did a very rhythmic three, two, one countdown just then. I hope you all noticed. It was like we were going to start dancing. Three, two, one. Ready? Okay. I need a guitar. And a tambourine. Welcome to Mamma Mia Out Loud. It's what women are talking about on Monday the 30th of May. I'm Holly Wainwright. I'm Mia Friedman. And I'm Emma Gillespie. And before we get to what's on the show, big news just happened before we came in our various studios. Peter Dutton announced as the new leader of the Liberal Party. Not a surprise because no one else was standing. Mm. Female deputy, Susan Lay. Don't Mm -hmm. know much about her. I want to put on the record I'm not amused by the Voldemort chat. Is that because you don't understand the reference? I say that with all due respect. <laughs> Do you know who no, Voldemort it is, is not Ho? That I am very much across the whole Voldemort situation okay. and the Harry Potter I had to ask. world. No, I agree. Tanya Plibersek <laughs> referred to him as Voldemort last week. Said he might scare children. Had to apologise. Was yeah. berated by her leader Anthony Albanese, our new prime minister. She has apologised. She called him straight away and apologised. I agree. I don't find any of that stuff funny. I think that we can't have it both ways. If we're not insulting women because of the way they look, we're not insulting men either. We're not insulting anyone because of the way they look. Insulting based on appearance is definitely a punch down, isn't it? But Voldemort has a lot of qualities, his personality, that maybe could be linked hypothetically. It's lazy, though. It's lazy. I think we all know what Peter Dutton's public persona is, but I feel like it's a lazy opposition move to just go, look, he looks funny and he's scary and he's... I don't think it's just lazy, Hull. I think it's cruel. This isn't just about Tanya because it's something that's been said widely. I think... It's cruel when you mock someone because of the way they look. You don't think he knows how he looks, you know, yeah. and he said he knows he's not the best looking bloke and he's got some medical condition. And you It's know, how it's... I feel when people fat shame Clive Palmer. There are so many reasons not to yeah. like Clive Palmer. Him being fat probably shouldn't enter yeah. the group chat. I remember about Trump. It was the orange face and the hair and it was like, is it okay to laugh at that or not? Oh, and that's different. Yeah. I'm okay with that, weirdly. <laughs> I'm okay with that as well because he constantly derides people, particularly women, but all kinds of people, based on their looks. So it's okay when it's about Trump. That's the straw I'm holding on to. On the show today, what's a sad boy big man? And has one of them just been elected here in Australia? And what happens when your boyfriend becomes Prime Minister? The pressure on Jodie Hayden. But first, Mia. Chris Jenner, who is a lot like me, has 
I've always thought of you and Chris Jenner as yes. having so much in common. On the latest episode of The Kardashians, Chris Jenner has had a conversation with her daughter Kendall, who I think is her second youngest child, about freezing her eggs. Here's a little bit of what she said to Kendall. Every year that goes by, your eggs, the count goes down a little bit. I'm going to ask, who are you calling? Dr. A. She's busy. She has a job she has and a time life. for me. Oh my God. Hi, Chris. Hi. Hi. Ask her if so, she, you should freeze eggs. So for Kendall, if she has a partner, yeah. but if they're not married, I usually recommend at least the cycle of egg freezing. It would be a good time to freeze eggs. Listen, the younger you are, the better the yes. quality. How young is too young to freeze your eggs? In Australia and New Zealand, the number of egg freezing cycles carried out annually Guess how much it rose by? I hate these 50, games. I hate 50%. it when people ask me to guess things. So I'll just tell you, 860% wow. between 2010 and 2018 nationally. Since the pandemic began, some Australian fertility clinics have reported a further surge in demand. But it's also not cheap. According to IVF Australia, elective egg freezing costs around $4,500, but then it costs $500 for every 12 months to store. And then the hormones that you need to take to retrieve the eggs will set you back around $1,500 as well. So it's invasive, it's expensive. Very expensive. The question is how young is too young to freeze your eggs? Kendall Jenner is 26. She was mortified by this conversation, which she obviously knew it was coming because it was an episode of a TV show, which she's part of. <laughs> but she pretended to be very surprised, which may or may not reflect how she really feels. She actually played a prank on her mum about a year ago where she said, I'm pregnant and me and my partner are getting married. She's been with her partner, who I think is a sports player. Definitely some sport. For two years. But she said... She didn't know what she wants to do with her life. She rejected her mother's suggestion. Well, she's and the only Kardashian-Jenner kid who doesn't have children. She is out of all of them. That's interesting. So she basically said, Mum, back off. Now, we've had Likely. arguments about this, Holly, because I think that it's not a bad idea for women to freeze eggs. You think it's a terrible thing. Speak your mind. <laughs> Just to correct the record, I do not think that freezing your eggs is a terrible thing. What I do think is a terrible thing is normalising the idea that every woman who doesn't have a baby growing in her belly by the age of 26 should be either considering it or doing it, especially considering that in Australia it costs around $5,000 mm. to do it. It's not covered by medical insurance and it's not a guarantee of anything. So... There are a couple of things about this Chris Jenner thing. First of all, it's just funny because I think that she's got 11 grandchildren and you might think she might have enough now. But, she but might it's not, not be. about her. She doesn't want her daughter to miss out. But her daughter is 26 and is saying, Mom, back off. I don't even know if I want to have kids. I don't mm. even know if this is what I want to do. And you're already harassing me about it. I think that we have moved to a place where we're talking about fertility so much, which is a great thing because for a long time we didn't, where now we've just all digested this information that if you're over 30 and you haven't had children, you're in a lot of trouble. Now, that is true for some people, but it is not 
true for everybody. And I think that trying to fear monger everybody, like 26 year olds, to get themselves to the fertility clinic. Like, I know that's not what Chris Jenner is doing and it's a TV show and everything, but the fact that we all just go, yeah, sure, yeah, she should be thinking about that. I'm like, no, she shouldn't. Emma, it's- you're 23. When are you freezing your eggs? I or have you left it too late, do you think? I've got to be honest, when I saw this headline about Chris having this conversation with Kendall, I did think it was a bit silly. I'm 27 and I'm not even close to thinking. Oh, I thinking... thought you were 23. Oh, my God. I think God. everyone younger than me is 23. I mean, I was. I have been a 23-year-old okay. for a whole year of my well, life. Well, you really are pushing it at 27. <laughs> oh, my God. I'll drive you after we finish the I'm show over the hill. Like. Listen, I'm not really thinking about fertility. I'm not close to thinking about fertility But maybe that's the issue. I spoke to someone today, actually, who's done egg freezing and she was 34 when she had her eggs frozen and she said that she wished she had done it earlier. It leads me to believe that egg freezing has a marketing problem because she didn't think about egg freezing. It wasn't front of mind for her whatsoever until she began to question her age but why, and her fertility options. But why should options. she have done it earlier? What's wrong with frozen 34-year-old eggs? They're not as good as frozen 27-year-old eggs. The chances eggs, of retrieving more eggs happen when you're younger. So if you're mm. under 35, a typical egg retrieval, you might get 10 to 20 eggs. If you're over 35, that number is closer to 10 hovers between 10 and 15. So you might be able to get double the amount of eggs when you're younger. She said it was successful for her in terms of the retrieval, but she just would have rather had more eggs be retrieved and Mm. had done it earlier in her life. If younger women are the target demo for the most successful egg freezing procedure, then why aren't we talking about it more? If fertility isn't something that you're thinking about yet, Isn't this the whole conversation and the problem with the fertility conversation that we're having all the time is that we are so empowered as a generation of women that we think we can get to an age where we press a magic button and we say, okay, I'm ready to have a baby right now. Nobody thinks that anymore. Yeah, but I'm saying that the wonderful thing about egg freezing is that it gives you that peace of mind that maybe when it does come to that time where you are ready to say, okay, I'm ready to have a baby right now. I just think we need more women sharing their stories. No, I think what you think um, is that we need women to be more anxious, not less anxious, about their fertility and have more pressure on them at a younger age to start freaking out that everything's going to be wrong with them under As a 27-year-old who is not with child or thinking about being with child, it gives me more peace of mind to know that there are options for me to secure my fertility potentially in the future. But this is the problem, right? It doesn't secure your fertility into the future, right? It gives you some options, yes. I don't think there's a marketing problem. I think there's a very successful marketing campaign to make young women freak out really early about their fertility and go and do invasive and expensive things to think that they've got money in the bank. Now, of course, it works for some people and it should absolutely be explored if you have any reason to think there's something wrong with your egg count, that your fertility might decline suddenly. Maybe you're about to undergo some treatment that could affect that. Maybe you've been to the doctor and they've checked out various things and said, look, judging by your genetic history and this and this and this, it would be a really good idea. But the idea that it should be a blanket assumption that before you're 30, women should have undergone this kind of procedure, expensive, invasive, stressful procedure, is crazy. I want to just state for the record, I mean, I know I'm being joking around about it, but I also find this really, oh my God, I was going to say problematic. I'm torn about it, right? Because I think that it's incredibly 
unfair that this burden is on women. And we're talking about a $5,000 tax basically for young women to secure their fertility into the future in case there's no partner around or in case they haven't found the right opportunity to become pregnant before their eggs go off. Holly, I will challenge you on this and say that you didn't need fertility treatment. You had no trouble getting pregnant and you got pregnant later in life. So I think that you might have a little bit of a, I'm going to say naive view of, I don't mean that to sound insulting. But my position is not only based on my life experience, Mia. (laughs) Fair. Well, I just think that I know so many women who have, for reasons of medical infertility or situational infertility, and that they just weren't ready to have a baby or they hadn't met the person they wanted to have a baby with before the time they ran out of eggs. I know so many women in that situation. And while egg retrieval is an expensive and it's not just like donating sperm, it's a painful, time consuming, it's invasive, as you say, Holly, all of those things. And this burden's now being placed on women. And if Jessie was here, she'd be throwing the word capitalism around a lot because there is an industry around this. But I also know that it's an industry that is capitalising on on a real issue. I think it gives me options, it gives me independence and that can't be a bad thing. I have the best advice for women in business. You have to surround yeah. yourself with Mamma Mia out loud! Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. It's been more than a week since the election and votes are still being counted. Can you believe votes are still being counted? It's looking more and more like Labor will form a majority government and it's looking more and more like independent ACT Senate candidate David Pocock will unseat Liberal Senator Zed Seselja. That's a seat that's been held by the Libs for 47 years. If you don't know him, David Pocock is a 34-year-old former professional rugby union star. He played for the Wallabies, clubs like the Brumbies. He won the John Eels medal in 2010, and that basically means that he was the best rugby boy in the land, so very good sports ball man. He scored a try, and he did that. Some people thought it was jazz hands, but it was actually the sign language sign that means clapping. Yes. Because he had some connection with a person who had a hearing impairment. Now, fairly or unfairly, when you think of a footy bloke, you don't necessarily think of a guy who is tapped into their own vulnerabilities, who is representing the deaf community at a rugby game. But David Pocock retired from rugby in 2020 to make a career out of spreading a message of conservation. So he became this unlikely environmental activist. He's spoken openly about his love of nature. He's shared a story of recovery from an eating disorder. He's a mental health advocate. Really? Because he's a big strapping, he looks like a big footy player. Exactly. And it's seen him transform into this beloved Aussie personality completely outside Mm. of sport altogether. And all of that has culminated in a shift to politics that will now see him become an Australian senator. 
So David Pocock has become a public figure who seems to walk this line between embracing masculinity and vulnerability. And it's a trend I think we're seeing more broadly, and I'm 100% here for it. I read an article over the weekend on Vox with the headline, The Rise of the Sad Boy Big Man. From John Cena to Jason Momoa, our most muscular movie stars are increasingly our most vulnerable too. And it articulates this idea that more and more in pop culture, we're seeing this subversion of a way that we expect strong men to behave. So when I say strong, I mean guys that are built like a brick shit house. You know, your Dwayne The Rock Johnsons, your Vin Diesels, those sort of unflappable, charismatic Adonis types. But John Cena, for example, he's starring in this new superhero series called Peacemaker. He's funny, he's silly, he cries all the time in this show, Peacemaker, right? And he mm. brings a sort of like soft, try-hard dad vibe. And it's confusing people. Off screen, he's like that too. He's appeared in TV commercials in the US about how the average American is not a white man. And he's speaking to predominantly other straight white dudes in America. And these are the kinds of guys that idolize him because of how he looks, his body, his fitness. And he talks about softness being important and that men should open up. Patriotism shouldn't just be about pride of country. It should be about love, love beyond age, disability, sexuality, race, religion, and any other labels. Because the second any of us judge people based on those labels, we're not really being patriotic, are we? He's emotional, he's vulnerable, he's also unmistakably masculine. Then we've got someone like Jason Momoa, another notable large man. <laughs> large man. He speaks openly about how much fatherhood means to him and the strength that he sees in being emotional. He was actually awarded the GQ Australia Man of the Year in 2019 and in an interview he said, I like people that have an openness, who know how to talk to me and pull the best out of me. That's masculine. They're not afraid to embrace sensitivity. Man, I got that from my mother. Men often brag, I don't cry. God dang. Whereas I say, don't cover it up. So oh, from I an like ex-rugby player to men who play superheroes in Hollywood's biggest blockbusters, are we done with toxic masculinity? I don't think it's fair to necessarily call the old style of masculinity toxic across the board. Like just because a guy has muscles doesn't necessarily mean he's toxic. And when we were looking at this article and thinking about this, Holly and I were reminded of the himbo phenomenon of the 80s and 90s, which was different because that was just about a guy who was really hot but not very smart. Right. And this is about a guy who on the outside might look like a tough guy, like Sylvester Stallone, for example, mm. or Arnold Schwarzenegger, but in actual fact is very in touch with their feminine side or, or has a high level of emotional intelligence. Yeah. Holly, is vulnerability so hot right now? Oh, massively. And I think it is about a reaction to toxic masculinity. Not that I agree with you, Mia. I don't think we can just claim toxic masculinity as anyone with muscles. But I think we've spent the last few years really kind of marinating in what toxic masculinity can do mm. and the awfulness of it in the era of Me Too. And I think that probably now there's nothing very aspirational at a like sort of co-ed mass marketing level about your stereotypical meathead. Do you know what I yeah. mean? An alpha yeah. male. And when I think about this, I think about Dax Shepard because I listen to Armchair Expert, which is his show, and he's enormously popular. And he's this guy, right? He's a massive, muscle-bound, six-foot-four, hetero alpha male. 
And he talks about that a lot, but he says he's constantly challenging that, like what he would call his lizard brain part of himself. And he jokes that he's a vulnerable boy, like as in vulnerable mm. boy. And that if he had a band, it would be called the vulnerable boys. But I want to ask this, right, is when it comes to it being good for marketing, as in we want our action heroes to come with a side of self-actualized tears, is it a little bit like a modern version of the Nordies cool girl? You know when it was like you look like Cameron Diaz, but you fart and burp and play pool and drink? Yes. And this is like you look like the classic masculine ideal, but you're vulnerable and you're sensitive. I wonder if it's like we haven't changed what we consider to be the most high status virtues in a man or a woman in this kind of very mass market way, but we want it now to come with a side of something different. Well, Hull, that girl that you've described, that's the pick-me girl, right, who does things to like typically impress boys, who's not like other girls. You know, I drink beer. I like sport. I think you've got to reflect on who is that good for, whereas with these big men, (laughs) the kinds of guys (laughs) who worship them because of their fitness or their body or because they perceive them to be Adonises and they slay with the ladies. If those guys have an audience that they can maybe challenge with their softer, in inverted commas, views, then I think that's good, right? That that's creating more vulnerable men. Oh, it's 100% good. And it's not just big boys. It's also the smaller boys as well. I was reading on the weekend about Kid Leroy, who's that 19-year-old, one of the hottest rappers in the world. He's actually an Australian Gamilaroi man. And he's got this hot TikTok influencer, beautiful girlfriend. And he's back in Australia for the first time in sort of three years. And he flew his grandparents to Sydney to watch him in concert. And also when he was in Melbourne, he hired out a fancy suite at the Crown for like $88,000 or something. And it was for a romantic candlelight dinner with his girlfriend. And there were like red rose petals everywhere. Once upon a time, a guy who was like a rapper would be rapping about bitches and hoes. Yeah. And then there's Harry Styles, who, you know, is wearing makeup and fabulous wide-legged pants and is mm. has just released a new album that's all about how much he adores his older woman girlfriend, Olivia Wilde. Toxic masculinity, which of course exists, is just not cool anymore, no matter how you look on the outside. What's good about this is that we've been talking for a while about how we need different versions of masculinity mm. for boys to look at, right? And like my son, who's about to turn 10, he already identifies like I'm not one of what he calls the sporty, confident kids. And for a long time, I think that they were the only acceptable cool boys were the sporty, confident boys, Mm. right? But with your Kid Leroy's and your Timothy Chalamet's and these guys and the big sad boys, it's like maybe we're finally expanding our vocabulary about what a good man looks like, that you can also be like Pocock, back to your um, intro, M, a rugby playing guy who also cares about the environment, cares about the world, cares about social issues. You don't have to pick a team, jock or emo, and stay there. If you want to make Out Loud part of your routine five days a week, we release segments on Tuesdays and Thursdays just for M Plus subscribers. To get full access, head to mamamia.com.au forward slash M Plus. That's M-P-L-U-S or follow the link in the episode description. 
Imagine that you met a man at a party. You get along. You're both grown-ups. He's divorced. He's got a kid. He's got a big job. You've got a big job. You see each other when you can. You're a couple, but you're not living together or anything quite like that. And then he gets elected as Prime Minister of the Nation. Well, that's what just happened to Jodie Hayden. She's the partner of Anthony Albanese. And here's Albo telling Mia about how he met Jodie. And have you got a partner now? I was going to say girlfriend, but it sounds faintly ridiculous at our age to be talking about boyfriends and girlfriends. It does at that age. (laughs) Yes, yes, I do. And we met at a function. It was a uh, dinner I was speaking at in Melbourne. And the person who introduced me, sledged my support for South Sydney, said, good bloke, but he's got this problem. Bad footy team. And so I did the random South guy thing of there's always a South supporter in any group in the world, wherever you are. (laughs) I did not know that. A South, (laughs) it's a thing. And so I said, there's always a South supporter out there. And a woman who turned out to be Jodie yelled out, yeah, out the rabbit <laughs> And so when I went round the table, as you do, I met her. Mm. And so she uh, sent me uh, a message, got in contact, and we caught up for a drink, a relationship formed. So since the election, we've seen quite a bit of Jody. We saw her on stage supporting him when he made his victory speech and he thanked her for coming into his life. We've seen her supporting him at events. We've seen them this weekend being papped on a date night when they went to the theatre. I want to know, do we know how to handle a prime ministerial girlfriend? And is that a public role or a private role? Because it's not as clear cut as the long established spouse who we kind of attribute some kind of almost semi-formal job to. It's a bit different, isn't it, Mia? What do you think? This is the first divorced prime minister we've had in the lodge and only the second unmarried prime minister we've had. The last one was Julia Gillard, whose first bloke was very famously Tim. He moved into the lodge with her and there was a lot of sort of sniggering and giggling about, oh, what does the first bloke do? And he took it on himself to speak out about men's health and men's mental health and he had a, an initiative around tool sheds or places where men could go and talk. And It's a funny role, isn't it? Because whether you're married or not, there's no official role. It's certainly not a paid role. Some prime ministerial partners choose to continue with their own careers. Tony Abbott's wife continued to run her daycare centres that she owned. Therese Rain, Kevin Rudd's wife, was a wildly successful and still is a wildly successful businesswoman who continued with her business interests. So there's lots of different examples and then you've got sort of people like Jeanette Howard and Jenny Morrison who didn't work outside the home and chose not to have a high-profile role in public life. Other than that 60 Minutes interview, I can't really remember Jenny Morrison taking any kind of public role. It's remarkable how much of a device she became from someone who barely spoke publicly when Mm. you think of Jenny Morrison. Yeah, she was sort of brought out as an asset in the end, but wasn't given anything to do or maybe chose not to during his prime ministership. I think this speaks to the sort of presidentialization of our democracy, which is something Jesse spoke about a few weeks ago, actually. The first lady or the first wife or whatever. I think we really want that to be a thing here. 
because it is such a thing in America. You know, the first lady, floaters. It's a ceremonial role, but you can be as involved as you want. Like look at a Michelle Obama. Jill Biden is the first first lady with a job going into the White House. But then think of Melania Trump. She notably didn't do that much. I think it plays into some yucky gendered stereotypes. So if you use that role and if Jodie wants to engage or not, and I think from what she said, you know, she'd like to stay focused on her day job and she wants to support Anthony. If you want to be involved and you want to be a force for good and you want to do interesting things, then I think it's a great platform and we should help people to launch off that platform if they wish it. But also maybe she just wants to be his girlfriend and that's that. But also they haven't been together that long, right? So it would be weird to insist on a public role for her. It must be very Uh, challenging for her to go from being a private person to a public person very quickly. And maybe she will be happy with that. Maybe she won't. It depends how the press treat her, I imagine. Mia, you've met Jodie. What's she like? Let's just talk about (laughs) that. That that sounded terrible. (laughs) What I mean is Is she as lovely as she seems? She's delightful. (laughs) She's very, you know, she'd fit right in on this podcast. I think she is an outlier, actually. But as you say, they haven't been together very long. I met her at a, a dinner party just before the election. She's very honest about the fact that they're still dating. Like, she didn't say this, but talk about an awkward conversation to have, like, whether you're going to live together or not, because they don't even live together yet. Well, News Corp says she's moving into Kirribilli House. I don't know how true that is. Well, he's moving into the lodge or Canberra. So Kirribilli House is the Sydney residence of the Prime Minister and the lodge is the Canberra residence. But I could see a degree of tentativeness about her on that stage on the night that he gave his victory speech. I was watching his body language intently and he was very mindful of where she was. He had his son on one side and he had Jodie on the other side and he picked up both their arms in like a victory salute. And Jodie, you know, she's a smart woman. She used to work in superannuation. She now works in the public service and did for a long time before she met Albo. But I also noted that on that night he gave a shout out to his ex-wife, Carmel Tabbott, who's a former New South Wales education minister, I believe. He said that she was in the audience and I think she was, you know, out on the hustings on election day. And I thought it was classy that he he made note of her as well. I just hope that we're nice to her. Like as soon as you brought up Tim Mia, Julia Gillard's former partner, we were so mean to him because he was a hairdresser. Like that was awful. He was a man and a hairdresser. Culturally, it was still confusing not to, I mean, when I say us, I certainly don't mean us as in the three of us, but culturally confusing to have a man who seemed to be in rightly or wrongly what we picture as a lesser role, right? I remember when Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister of Britain when I was a kid and my feelings about Margaret Thatcher are well uh, known. complicated. But her husband, Dennis, was a figure of absolute fun in the papers because he had to walk behind her because he wasn't as important and we couldn't handle it, like we didn't know what to do. I hope that Jodie, who obviously is a very smart woman with her own career, is if she wants to get involved in things, she can. But it's not really a public role in Australia. So if she wants to be left the hell alone, she should probably be free to do that too. I also want to mention that there's a really significant age gap, which I don't know if it's that the media hasn't caught on yet is or it? that Albo is too likeable to go there. How significant is the age gap? She, I believe, is 43 and I think he is 59. The fact that that's kind of been swept under the rug, 
I like Albo on the record, happy to say it, but when I found out there was that age gap, I did feel a little bit disappointed in men again. Oh! I don't think that age gap is as significant at that age no, it's that not. it is 10 years earlier or 20 years earlier. I think that you're looking at two people who are very established in their lives. He has a grown-up child. Neither of them are thinking about, as far as we know, having babies together, although with egg donation, it's possible. Maybe she froze her eggs. Maybe we'll come full circle. Here we go. Oh my I God. don't know. I should have heard it here first. A quick recommendation before we go. I am nearly finished reading Anna Wintour's biography. It's not Ooh. an official biography. If you are interested in the iconic Anna Wintour, immortalised in The Devil Wears Prada by Meryl Streep. She's the editor-in-chief of US Vogue, has been for more than 20 years. But not only that, she pretty much controls the entire fashion industry from her perch remarkable behind her desk. Me. Did you learn anything new about her, Mia? Anything shocking? It's really, really interesting. So she has three assistants and she only learns the name of the first assistant who is like the boss of the other assistants and then she calls just all of the assistants by the first assistant's name. Oh. So if she learns your name, it means you've really made it. So this biography sounds like a fact-checking mission of the plot of The Devil Wears Prada. And it's it's uncanny and extraordinary how accurate it is. And even though Meryl Streep and the producers of that film took a lot of trouble to say, oh, it's not really about Anna because it was based on a book written by one of her ex-assistants, it very much is. I mean, she's not a monster, but she really does not care what people think of her. She's very interesting. So it talks about the politics of the magazine industry and the fashion industry and, and then she ended up leaving her husband. She had an affair with this Texan oil billionaire. Ooh, never became a partner and, and just the power she wields behind the scenes, you know, in Obama's campaign and then in Hillary Clinton's campaign and so interesting wow. and lots of gossip about supermodels and all of those kinds Gimme. of things. Gimme. What's it called? Highly recommend. The author is Amy O'Dell, who's a very well-respected writer in America. It's called Anna, the Anna Winter Biography. Thank you for listening to us today. This episode is produced by Emma Gillespie and Leah Porges. And the executive producer is Eliza Ratliff, who is off getting ready for her wedding. How exciting. exciting. Anyway, we will see you tomorrow, my friends. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. This podcast was made by Mamma Mia, the only women's media company in Australia. If you want to support women's media, we'd love it if you became a Mamma Mia subscriber. There is a link in the show notes.